continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with cops. Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales, and I'm here with my friend Brad Edwards, and we are seeking to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. If you've been with us before, you know that Brad and I have been exploring the ways that radical individualism is ravaging Western culture. On the left, we see what Mark Sayers has described as a desire for the kingdom without the king. And on the cultural right, we see a grasping for a kind of king, but a general disdain for kingdom values and truth. And so, Brad, you and I, we are leading a charge here. We are living in this time where individual identity formation is running rampant, and we're trying to point to a better way, the way of Jesus, which is about receiving our identity rather than achieving it. And this has led us to, I think, an interesting and maybe unexpected or counterintuitive place where we are talking a lot about the role of institutions. Institutions, I don't think, have a very good name. It's not a very popular idea in American culture, yet it's our institutions that shape our virtues, that carry our narratives, and mediate our identities. And so we were delighted to see several weeks ago Alan Noble's article on the importance of institutions and particularly Christian institutions of higher education in Christianity today. And so today we're talking with Dr. Noble. Dr. Noble, we, we saw your encouragement on Twitter a couple days ago that we need to refer to you as Dr. Noble. And so we're, we're happy to follow course there. Dr. Noble is a associate professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, the author of numerous articles, and also the author of Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Christian Age. So Dr. Noble, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm excited. You, you definitely don't have to. I mean, you can call me Alan. <laughs> I, I, will be a, I will be offended, but you can call me Alan. Okay. <laughs> and if nothing else, we've definitely run that joke into the ground enough anyway. So we'll, we'll just refer to you as, hey, you, thanks. Thanks for coming. <laughs> buddy. Yeah. Hey, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Alan, your, your article was titled, Christian Colleges Are in Crisis. Here's what that means for the church. If we save them, our schools can be beacons of light for the Christian community. I know that authors don't always write the title and subtitle of their articles, but that's a I think an inspiring, pretty grand claim. You really set this article up talking about so many of the things that have happened in the last year in the U.S. from political polarization, racial division, you know, the election that we've walked through. And then you say the foundations of our society are not quite destroyed, but they are cracking, which raises the question, what can we do? And you respond, part of the answer, I believe, is to support and rely upon Christian colleges and universities to serve as institutional anchors, spaces of transformation and education, discipleship and scholarship, cultural edification and exhortation. So can you help us understand the role that institutions play as anchoring points in our lives? So good institutions, at least, um, should be spaces where uh, that, that serve particular communities uh, locally, and then, and then, you know, depending on the size of the institution, it could be nationally or even even globally. Um, and the the hope is that an institution has some some sense of authority because of 
experience, because of work, because of um, credentialing, so, so, some metric, some ability, some way we can look at it and say, okay, these, these are people who are dedicated to doing a certain kind of work uh, for the good of this community, whether it's uh, social services, whether it's poverty, whether relief, whether it's homelessness, whether it's ed education, whatever it might be. Um, an institution, political advocacy, an institution should have some expertise. And, um, you know, the, the goal there is that you have a certain group of people dedicated to doing that work for other people, for the sake of other people. Because mm -hmm. we can't all do all of these things. But in institutions, we can work together, select few can work together, and we can support those institutions to do important, good work. And uh, it's part of the, the, you know, the claim that I'm making in this, in this article is that there are some foundational cracks in contemporary American society. And I do think that in addition to the church proper, which is the first place we have to look, but in addition to the church proper, I do think Christian colleges and universities can be institutions that help shore up the ruins by laying uh, theological foundations, philosophical foundations, by mentoring, by creating, by doing research that helps people in the church make sense of the world. Um, and yeah, so the, that's, that's what institutions do. Well, I like the way that you framed it both here and in the article, because in a sense, there is a an inextricable relationship between Christian higher ed and the church, because, you know, Christian colleges, and universities in many ways are, and seminaries are both upstream and downstream of the church in the sense that you're receiving students that have been formed by the church, you know, when they go off to college or when they go to seminary or what have you. And also in the process of that, you know, professors like yourself are writing books that pastors like us are reading. And there's this really beneficial kind of codependent relationship and, and cycle there. I think there's a really important point to be made around how institutions are formative in ways that are way beyond their walls and sure. and contribute not just to and well, in the sense because just like the church, it's existing for a purpose outside of itself. Right. I'm curious, especially yep. as you're as you're making this case, I kind of wonder. Right. Like I did not grow up in the church. I did not grow up. I didn't go to a Christian college or university. I was public liberal arts university in Northeastern Missouri. And so, so much of my entrance into the church was shaped by this like kind of anti-legalism version of the gospel that is talking about the indicative and the imperative and the indicative empowers the imperative. And when you switch those, that's when you get legalism. And I think me and a lot of people, and I'm curious how you see this with, with your students, especially, but just in general, it feels like in our urgency to avoid legalism, we've kind of avoided formation and maybe devalue the importance of institutions informing and shaping people in holistic ways. So could you talk about that? Is, is, is that something that's connected or maybe define formation in a way that is in light of that context? That's an interesting observation. I had, I had not thought about that in terms of, of institutions and formation. Um, I have thought for for quite a while, as as people sometimes will ask me, so where do you think the church is at in, in culture right now? Where, where are its weaknesses? And for a couple of years now, I've been saying that I think we've done a, a pendulum swing from 
sort of the the 90s where I grew up in the church where there was a lot of, I mean, you described it as legalism, but there's also a a, a paranoia about culture, Mm. a fear Mm. about culture. Culture out there is dangerous. It could corrupt us. Um, uh, My mom made me stop watching uh, Ninja Turtles because somebody levitated. Uh, I mean, uh, that's, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that you, this fear that, that culture is going to creep in. And what's interesting to me now is I had this experience a couple of years ago with, um, with some young evangelicals talking about around me, they knew I was in the room and they, and they were talking about the final episode of game of Thrones and how awesome it was. And I just thought to myself, man, when I was their age, if I were, with other evangelicals, and especially in a place where there was like an older evangelical, like a kind of leader, I would be terrified to say anything (laughs) about like watching, you know, you know, a a music video on MTV or something. I mean, it, 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 so what happened? Because they, they obviously feel very comfortable. And so Mm. I think, I think there's been a pendulum swing so that, that a lot of people who grew up as I did, with this very antagonistic and paranoid uh, vision of culture, um, now our, our sort of default is, uh, is is cultural embrace and maybe even skeptic and not maybe and skepticism of of Christian institutions, okay. um, and so there can be this feeling: well, do we really need a Christian college? Because you know, when I grew up, I, I heard people going off to Christian colleges because they were afraid to go to real schools and face, mm. you know, atheists or whatever. And, uh, you know, mm. but um, but that's not what's going on. I mean, I can only speak for, you know, the schools I've been to, but that's not what's, you mm. know, that's not mm. the experience that, that, that our students are having here. So, um yeah, that's an interesting observation. I suspect that that might be the case. So that that so that as a result, some people are let's say less interested in going to Christian colleges. They see it less as a value, and um, in part because they don't see the formation as valuable. Hmm. But culture is hmm. forming us. Culture yeah. is forming us in dramatic ways, and I don't think the church is paying attention to that. No, I, I think there's a. I mean, I feel like you, you've talked about this quite a bit that in the arena of politics, I feel like that is probably one of the most clearly identifiable places where we're being shaped by something outside of the church to the degree that it is actually syncretistic is not even remotely strong enough of a word, but that that shapes our understanding of what it looks like to dialogue or even have a posture within the political realm that used to be or should be biblically speaking, right? Slow to speak quick to listen, patient, you know, the, the fruit of the spirit, like that, that, that might actually inform our, our politics and how we engage. But instead, right, we now think that because of the kind of vitriol that we see playing on politics and social media, especially like there's a, a, a conquering attitude in, in our dialogue that is, that's been shaping and forming Christians far more than the fruit of the spirit. Since we yes. brought up the the kind of political angle, one of the points I thought that was interesting in your article is, Alan, you said that often the default way that Christians kind of go in responding to culture is to engage in the culture war efforts. I'm curious about how does support for institutions differ in a big picture sense than engaging in the culture wars, because in some ways it feels like they're both 
related to the pursuit of power mm-hmm. and is supporting Christian institutions, doesn't it ultimately lead us to the same place? We're just trying to kind of build institutional power rather than maybe celebrity power or platform power, political power? I mean, I would rather, uh, you know, institutional power than celebrity power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we'd be doing, that's, uh, that sounds like, that sounds pretty great, uh, to be honest. So uh, there's, there's so much to unpack there. It's difficult, mm. but, there, but, it, but it's all important. Uh, one thing I would say is that, that, that power itself is not, um, it's not a bad thing. It's a tool to be, to be used. And uh, we should not be desiring to pursue power, but pursuing good often entails, uh, you know, uh, power. Pursuing good often entails power, you know, the power Mm. to um, demand justice, the power to to educate, the power to feed people. Um, Those are uses of power that are oriented toward the good. So good institutions should be oriented toward the good, not oriented towards winning the culture war. Now, that said, the culture war as a phrase is, is so fraught. There's so many, I mean, it is a phenomenon. And, and uh, if you support some Christian institutions, you are directly supporting the culture war because it's very clear from their messaging and their identity that this is what they're about. They're, they're here to advance a certain identity group. And uh, by funding them, you're helping them with that mission. Um, but there is another sense in which, uh, maybe we shouldn't talk about a a war, but there's cultural decay going on and there are Mm. forces that are encouraging that decay and there are forces that are resisting it and, and a lot of them in the middle. Um, and I do think that it's valuable to recognize that, you know, investing in institutions, including churches is a way of resisting cultural decay, of saying there are truths, there are things that are beautiful, there are things that are good, and it, 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 and we ought to be fighting for and promoting those things, mm-hmm. including things like justice. Yeah, you, there's almost no way to, in order to reject a posture that leads to culture wars, does not mean that you have to reject a posture that says that there are moral claims or, or a, a moral absolute in terms of like, by saying that something can cultivate virtues, we're saying that that is worth cultivating and more worth cultivating than something else. So yeah, yeah that's pretty unavoidable. And I wonder how much of what you're describing there is related to the institutional skepticism that you, uh-huh. you mentioned earlier. And I, I wrote this down. You just said that institutions should be oriented toward the good. Yeah. And it feels, you know, to what degree this is accurate or where there are just our awareness and perception has, has been, has grown, but that there is a, like, that was the most kind of challenging thing that you said to like most people that showed show up at my church, right. Is that, that institutions could be oriented toward the good. Like they're just seen as they're actually more oriented toward self-promotion toward um, selfishness, not existing for their own good. And connecting that to Bryce's question of like, how is that different? Well, I guess it depends on the institution, right? As long as the institution is, if it is oriented toward the good, the common good, then that is worthy of promoting and supporting. And that's, uh, that's a process of, of assessment that we, we all need to be making both as, as people who are participating in specific institutions and, and supporting those institutions. 
um, because there is a difference. There's absolutely a difference. Many institutions exist for their own sake. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they don't actually contribute anything to the world uh, except feeding the, the people who, uh, who work for them. Um, that's, that's it. They don't actually need to exist. Um, but they create their own controversy. They create their own problems and, uh, solve those problems and make people feel like they're doing something in this, this cosmic cultural battle. But other places are saying, okay, well, there are good things that need to be done. And to do this good, we need to pursue these things. We need to, 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 uh, pursue this kind of formation with our students, for example, mm-hmm. or or this kind of a political advocacy or advocacy for justice or or compassion or whatever it might be, and they are oriented toward the good, and they need to be uh, held accountable. I mean, those those institutions need constituents who are saying uh, who who are affirming what's good about them, and and who are willing to not antagonistically but lovingly say. Um, you seem to be getting off mission here. Let's let's hmm. stay the course, um, because institutions can have their own momentum. Uh, you know, I just said that a lot of them exist purely for themselves. I think that's a pull. I think that's just a pull that 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 once hmm. you get the the mechanism up and rolling, the funding rolling, the 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 positions rolling, the building, all these sorts of things, you can create this momentum where uh, unbeknownst to anyone uh, specifically in the institution, you might get to a place where you really aren't pursuing the common good. You're really just mm. existing to exist. You're just doing what you're doing. And you might need someone outside to say, hey, I love what this place is about. It's not really doing that anymore. How can we, mm. how can we correct, correct? And we just, we just have to be able to do that in a way that's not antagonistic because we tend to be just so like mm. lobbing stones like oh mm. this place is terrible now and they're going to mm. hell and we got to shut them down and yeah right like it's it's a t- constant tension bryce and i are both church planters and you know we would love to you know have our churches be so on mission and not have to worry about paying the salaries of our staff or you know rental fees or you know that kind of thing but there's also a reality that if we there's a shot clock on the funding and if we don't kind of prioritize financial self-sustainability, there's going to be an expiration date on our ability to do those things. So yeah, I think that's probably a, yeah. a constant tension. Kind of the whole idea of the the mission of the institution, I think is really important. And yet, I would love to hear your thoughts on this because as pastors, it's pretty clear how we define, well, it, it at least could be very clear how we define the mission of the church. <laughs> And yet Jesus <laughs> gives us pretty clear instructions the, about what the, the mission of the church is in terms of discipleship and evangelism. Yeah. How do we conceive of the mission of, you know, I guess in general, any institution that isn't named in Scripture, but specifically Christian institutions of higher education, Christian colleges and universities, how do we conceive of their mission and is is there a, a point at which Christian colleges actually inadvertently surely begin to undermine the mission of the church when colleges begin to see their role as discipleship? Mm-hmm. I mean, having been both a student, I went to Westmont College, a Christian liberal arts college. I also for six years was a college pastor doing RUF at the University of Utah on a secular campus. In both of those contexts, the the university has, you know, a, whether it's a student life office or 
something more specifically defined in terms of discipleship on a Christian college. The, the, the institution, the, the, the college, the university is trying to shape and form students. How do we partner together yeah. churches and colleges rather than sort of inadvertently undermining the church's <laughs> ability to disciple to disciple students because for a lot of institutions not just colleges but but all institutions um mission creep uh yeah. not just drift it's creep right in other words it's expanding and so if you've got a bunch mm. of students on campus and you know that that part of your job is 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 spiritual formation it's not your main job and it's not the main um a group that is tasked with spiritual formation of these students that should be a local congregation, but as a, a an explicitly Christian institution where you're living together, um, spiritual formation is going to happen. In fact, they're going to be spending a lot more time on that campus than they're going to be spending inside the church. I mean, that's just. I mean, it is what it is, right? Yeah. And yeah. so what can happen is, uh, you know, well-meaning schools can think, you know, we need to provide, we need to provide Bible studies. We need to provide, right. you know, uh, you know, more chapels or maybe we should do something on Sunday mornings or, you know, and what can happen is all of a sudden you're just crowding out the local church. And so yeah. schools have to be intentional. They have to be saying, go, get out, leave, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I know at OBU, we've, we, we try to do a very good job of, of bringing local congregations on campus um, within the first few weeks of, of, the, of, of the semester in the fall uh, so that students see, okay, here's where you need to go. Go, go elsewhere. This is not your church. And, yeah. um, but I think even here, I mean, even among the students, that, you know, there can be a pull to create informal Bible studies and stuff. And, and, and while there's something admirable about that, uh, when it's not grounded in a church, um, it can become, I think, it can become mis- misdirected. So, yeah, it's important uh, to, to um, you know, so you ask the question, okay, where, how do we define the mission of higher yeah, education? Yeah. So, well, one of the things we can do is we could say what it's not, and what it's not is the role of the church, right? The church mm-hmm. proper, and so that's that gives us some guide rails. So we can say, okay, our our job is not primarily uh, the preaching of the word, evangelism, and uh, discipleship. We can do all of those things. You can have preaching during chapel. You can certainly have evangelical type uh, evangelism type events, and and and, and mm-hmm. discipling is going to happen. Period. But that's not our main job. That's not our main job. Um, but from there, I think we can just use the the reason God has given us and the the long the church's long history with education as this as a foundational tool for formation. I mean, it's the church that starts, you know, the university. I mean, um, yeah. yeah. So so it's not we're not creating something new here. We're tapping into a long tradition and saying, this is valuable. So how do we do this well in, in our particular context today? Hmm. Um, and there can be some minor disagreements, but, but I, yeah. think. I wonder if, you know, to your point, discipleship is happening. Formation is happening regardless, even if it's 
we're talking about a kind of almost anti the anti institutions of social media. Uh, we're still being formed, even if we could argue that we're being deformed. I, I wonder if the role of Christian colleges and universities is particularly about forming the Christian mind and Christian imagination. That is the, sort of the unique place. I don't know where else that is happening. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, so there are things that the church can do, but there are things, um, especially if, as we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture, there, are, there uh, the, the church has limited resources. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only so much you can do from the pulpit, but even, even, you know, with things like Sunday school, there's only so much teaching that you can do. And I, and I, and I believe that, that a lot, uh, I think most Christians need to be reoriented to where they are in society. They don't actually see where they are. They don't understand the assumptions that they have. You guys have been mentioning, um, you know, radical individualism. Uh, yeah. uh I, and I, it's my belief that most of my students don't see how much they've bought into that. And part of my task is to slowly do this process of revealing and saying, hey, isn't it weird the way we think in these individualist terms? Where are we getting that? Can you give some examples of that maybe? Like just like, well, how, what put some flesh on it. Yeah. So for me, this is one of the reasons I think the liberal arts, teaching the liberal arts is key. Um, because So I teach a, a, a two-course sequence called Western Civilization where we begin with the Romans and we go all the way up to you know, the early 2000s. And what I tell my students at the very beginning is that, that the world we're going to encounter in the ancient world is weird to them. But it's weird because the way we are living is really hmm. historically incredibly weird. We're disconnected from each other. We're dis- disconnected from creation. We don't think in, in, in terms of the sacred and the transcendent. We don't think of, we think, think of time as purely secular. There are all these weird things that you guys don't even recognize because it's just the air you breathe. It feels normal. Let's look at what has happened. Let's look at the past. We're going to read the history. We're going to read some literature. We're going to live in that for a little bit and see how it's distinct. We're going to see some horrible mm-hmm. things. Where I'm not, I'm not saying we want to go back there, uh, but we will. But what that does do is it helps us see where we are um, mm-hmm. accurately or more accurately because it is a weird time, and most of us don't realize it because we've been born into it. Mm-hmm. Man, so that that's this really hits on one of the questions I was I was really curious to ask you is you know as. You started at OBU in 2014, so you've had several years of of teaching in the same place and seeing successive classes come through. And it feels like since about that time, 2014, and maybe a couple of years earlier, we, we have been on this like accelerating trajectory of culture shifts. My hunch is it's highly related to the ubiquity of social media and 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 a lot of things going on there. And I don't want to, because of what you just said around, you know, there's a limit to what churches can do in formation with that. But in your, uh, you know, disabusing students of the cultural assumptions that they're bringing to the table, where have you seen indications that the church has either made that job harder for you in ways that the church or pastors, the way we're doing discipleship has been maybe uncritically unaware of the way that we're shaped by that? Like, what are some of the things that the church can do differently that would make that class less shocking to your students when they come in? That's a great question. So I think that, um, so there are a couple of things. One, one thing comes to mind, and this is a great worry of mine. I worry that many of my students and many young evangelicals in general 
mm-hmm. um, have a very good sense of the lists of things that they should not do, particularly in, in terms of sexual ethics. I feel like they have a very good sense of that, but I don't think they have a, a rich uh, theological understanding of how all those pieces fit, to, fit together. So, so how does the body, uh, theology of the body, theology of marriage, mm. theology of children, theology of sex, mm. how do all of these things fit together as a whole that is comprehensible and, and, and is meaningful, right? Mm. And so what can happen is, my fear is that, that, that churches have been very good at raising students who know, okay, these things are wrong, these things are right. Um, but the, the primary reason these students hold to them is not because they believe them necessarily to be true, but, but because it's part of their lifestyle choice at the mm. time, right? This is, they're part of their identity, right? So my identity yeah. is that I'm this, you know, I'm this kind of a, a Christian. Well, what happens when they have a, a, they go to college, they get a roommate who has same-sex attraction, and all of a sudden they think, you know what, why, why do I, you know, why not, why not be affirming about, of, hmm. of, you know, LGBT? Yeah, he's a nice guy. Yeah, what's, I, I don't, mean, what's the problem? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. I know I was told not to, but, but why? And I don't know why. Yeah. So that, that worries me. That, that worries me a great deal because I think in that moment what can happen is, they say, gosh, it really feels more loving to affirm this. Mm. And that's what I really have is, is, is this, is this feeling. So we've got to, we've got to, to anchor that. I think, and this is the center of this, this book that I'm editing right now. I I think that churches and colleges uh, need to be resting on the, you know, the first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is, what is your only comfort in life and in death, but that you are not your own, but belong body and soul mm-hmm. and life and death to Jesus Christ. And, and uh, that concept of not being your own, I think is critical because it makes sense of our sexual ethic. It makes sense of our life of, of service and sacrifice to each other. It mm-hmm. makes sense of the way we use power as a, as, as a, as a tool to pr- promote the good rather than an end to itself. It makes sense of the way that we understand our identity. It makes it, it does mm-hmm. all these wonderful things, and it is completely counter to what in this book I call the contemporary anthropology, which I believe is the claim that we are our own and we belong to ourselves for better and for worse. Um, hmm. And I think our hmm. students, I think, I think it's very possible to be a Christian today and to buy into that anthropology, to believe that I am fundamentally my own, I am on my own, and I, it's my own responsibility to make sense and meaning and purpose out of my life and, and say, well, I'm going to do that through Christianity. Hmm. And that's just a fundamental misconception of what's going on. Yes. Man. Amen. Yeah, because that, be, that would be completely antithetical to an institutional mindset. I mean, to be part of an institution is to say, I belong to something apart from myself. And I, I don't know which would be the chicken or the egg, but I think there's, that feels very related in that skepticism. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you can, uh, we still have, we still have institutions, obviously. And even though I think this is, that is the predominant anthropology that we work with. So how is it that we have institutions if we just Mm. really think that we are our own? Well, I, I think this helps explain why our institutions are incredibly fragile. 
and why they mm. are are uh, uh, self focused that, that they're self perpetuating that they they only really exist to keep existing in in some cases because we don't mm. have a sense of of loyalty we don't have a sense that this is a valuable thing that is worth giving my life my time my blood and tears and prayers for this thing to belong here and um, instead we think of there's this great um, philosopher named Zygmunt Bauman I just love his name I just want to say his name I'm not even <laughs> going to tell you what he has to say because just I just want to say Zygmunt Bauman Zygmunt yeah. Bauman I, ho- I don't even know if I'm uh. saying his name right to be honest but it doesn't really matter anyway <laughs> He, he, he says in this book called Liquid Modernity, which is fantastic, he says that there's a, a modern existence is, is marked by a, what, is he, what does he say, uh, until further notice-ness. So I'm, I'm involved in this institution until further notice, right? Or I'm involved in this marriage until further notice, or yeah. I'm a Christian until further notice. There's always this, well, this is what we're doing for now, right? This is what we're doing for now. Um, and that's part of what makes the modern world liquid in his in his mind mm. bryce you, you look like you're gonna ask a question but like i i, I, I would love to run a, a kind of an evolving thesis by you and just poke holes in it tell me if we're crazy that kind of a thing but yeah. I, i've i've been recently rethinking and seeing just social media in general through this lens of it it functions as a counterfeit institution in that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, plan for the world is to to make sure everyone is connected. And so there is a, a community aspect of it, but there's this promise that you can infuse and use social media as a means of fulfilling your own meaning and purpose. Mm-hmm. And that that is, it's, we're not telling you what your meaning and purpose should be, right. but you get to have it. But what is behind, you know, the portal or the foyer of social media as you are using it as a, as a user is that as a counterfeit institution has, has its own meaning and purpose. And it is to extract your attention for the sake of ad revenue. And so when you are part of an institution that is telling you, you can have your own meaning and purpose, but it has a different one of its own you're getting used to and you're shaping people in the direction of one expecting real institutions, actual institutions to allow you to come and import your own meaning and purpose. And so the idea that you should conform yours to theirs and to like get on board with that is a completely foreign concept now because we've been shaped to believe that we can just import our own. But what's, what's really terrifying about that is, is, is how much, social media is seen as a safer institution hmm. and yet it is it is just as manipulative hmm. as the more obvious abuse of power that we see in brick and mortar institutions i just yeah. wonder how much yes there's this radical individualism or expressive individualism that is is really becoming an increasingly common and primary identity hmm. uh, that we self-form but Social media is this, it functions as this liturgy that just greases the wheels so that we we slide down that degradation and deformation even faster. Yes, I, yeah, I think that's no, I think that's right. That's right. I um, so there's a an, a feedback loop that happens. So mm-hmm. what, um, because consumers desire to express their identity, uh, social media exists. But because social media exists. We are formed and encouraged and practiced to and habituated to 
uh, expressing our identity. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, what starts as a, as a response uh, absolutely feeds it. And what's hmm. important with expressive individualism is that it has no telos. There's no end. You can't express yourself hmm. enough. You always have to keep expressing. It's, it's, it's a perpetual hmm. thing, which, by the way, as a, as, a, um, as a marketing tool is fantastic, right? If people always <laughs> need to come to you to get this sense of fulfillment by expressing their opinions on politics or love or sports or whatever, then uh, you win. Right. So I think, you know, this is one of the things that's fascinating to me. I was talking earlier about sort of the church in the Mm. 90s and this fear of culture. And it was always very distinctly a fear of certain worldviews. And uh, uh, and it's not that that sort of thing doesn't exist, but I think you're you're dead on when you said that sort of their their purpose is is the bottom line. Right. So it's um, the nefarious part isn't that they're trying to program us into becoming socialists or, uh, you know, I don't know, atheists or something like this. The bottom uh, what's creepy is that that they're just trying to pay their bills. They're just trying to be successful. And that happens to mean uh, Mm. encouraging us to feel perpetually inadequate so that we have to Mm. keep coming back. Right. Mm. But but this is but mm. uh, so so all that's true. I do think that that social media, in one sense, is a big part of our culture, but it's also just doing what everybody else is doing. All advertisements are doing is, is telling you that you're mm-hmm. inadequate. I mean, all self-help, all those, it, it, you know, there are so many industries. Their main pitch to you is that you are inadequate uh, by this or accept this service and then we will fix you. So. Mm. Yeah. Yes. I'm curious about getting your, you're an English professor. And so I'm curious to get your input on the role of narrative in this whole discussion, because you just mentioned this idea that the worldview is the issue, which, which kind of assumes that there are these propositional truths that are shaping us in detrimental ways, but they're not coming to us in the form of propositional truth. They're coming to us you know, in Disney movies, mm-hmm. one of my pet peeves, my kids, I think, are figuring this out, is the way that kind of expressive individualism gets anachronistically worked back into period pieces. <laughs> like oh I was God. watching whatever this Anola yeah. Holmes movie is, uh-huh. um, the, the the younger sibling of Sherlock Holmes a couple weeks ago with my kids, and she's kind of been overlooked, and at one she runs away from home. And at one point she says, I can't remember what the quote was, but something to the effect of, well, I just have to go, you know, be true to myself. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, nobody in, you know, mid 19th century England was thinking about how to be true to themselves. They were. <laughs> so how, how do we um, begin to tell a better story about the hero that gives up this opportunity for self-advancement to remain true to their people and sacrifice themselves for the good of their community. I mean, how does that story begin to take on cultural cachet in our world? That's a great question. That's, that's okay. Now I'm going to defend those producers and writers a little bit and say that um, (laughs) Shakespeare has Polonius and Hamlet say to thine own self be true. Um, Hmm. 
so in you know the 17th century. So it's possible. But, yeah, well, but certainly we're not, not in the sense that she was using it. I, I'm just, I just want to, as an English professor, I, mean, I just want to point that out. Okay, yeah. it's possible. I mean, I mean, we're talking about things along like a continuum here. Like no. we're not opposed to freedom. Right. We're not advocating, you know, totalitarianism. only if it's a good totalitarianism right well yeah right like it's individuals are not bad and having a defined sense of self is not a bad or unhealthy thing it's when it becomes elevated to the an ultimate transcendent virtue as opposed to one aspect of your total identity so So, yeah that's that's we can we can absolutely absolutely so here's i'm gonna give you a way to think about it that that is this is what I, the example I use in this book that um, I'm not sure it's going to be called. You are not your own. I think that's what it's going to be called. Anyway. Mm. So pre-order it in five or six months. Anyway. Um, we'll do. I think about uh, the difference between uh, uh, the, the crisis that Dante faces in the Divine Comedy in the 14th century and the crisis that uh, modern, so that, what was her name? Shakespeare, uh, not Shakespeare. Uh, Anola Holmes. Anola Holmes, yeah. okay, yeah. Th- that she faces. So for, for Dante, the question, he's walking through life, and he all, all of a sudden he discovers he's off the path. He's in the woods, and he's in the middle of his life. And this is a basic story that we tell, this, this story of you're going through life, and all of a sudden you look around, and you're like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? What am I doing? What is the purpose of my life? Well, how did I get this wrong? But for Dante, what's interesting is it's not an identity crisis. He does not want to know who Dante mm. is. It's a spiritual crisis. His, so his mm. focus is he sees the, the sun, which represents God and divine illumination, and he realizes, I've got a journey toward that. I need to get to Christ-likeness. That's my problem. Mm. The, the problem with me being in these dark woods is that I can't see the sun properly, and I need to get back on the road towards Christ-likeness. So, so that's the sort of the, the, the medieval paradigm, but for in the contemporary world, it's, 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 uh, it's a similar thing. I start out, it, 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 I do think it starts earlier than middle age, though. I do think that, you know, it's a teenage, it could be, a, there's a, definitely a teenager version where you, you look around and you say, who am I? right? Mm. Uh, you, you feel lost. You're unsure of where to go. It is an orientation question. What is my true self so I can pursue that true self? Um, but it's, it's an identity crisis. It's not a spiritual crisis. And so, yes, and that is antag- an- anachronistic for yeah. uh, 18th century, 19th century England. You're right. Yeah, you had just, a question. Oh, the narrative. Yeah, How do we get yeah. <laughs> Sorry. What does it look like to kind of... <sighs> tell a better story and how do we um kind of steeped in the narrative that i have to find myself discover myself and be true to myself and then project myself to the world seems like common sense Mm -hmm. to you know at least people under the age of 45 today how do we begin to tell but, you know, a more a fuller, more beautiful story than that. Oh, man. So my dream is that 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 people uh, would fund institutions of Christian higher learning um, and fund artists. Uh, I mean, writers, uh, filmmakers to tell those stories, because, look, there's mm. there, there are two two main approaches. One is puncturing the, the current myth. Right. And this is this is a it's a huge thing. This could be done from the pulpit. And I do think churches do this to some extent. And I think that's part of my job to some extent is is saying, 
look how unfulfilling this is. This, this is mm. what you're striving after. It doesn't actually work. And that's, that's important. But we cannot stop there because our, our culture yes. is a culture of cynicism mm-hmm. and, and satire and so tearing and critique. It's a, a culture of critique. So critiquing, yeah. saying, wow, this is screwed up. You, people are just like, yeah, you're right, you're, you're right, but what are you going to mm-hmm. do, right? That's that's our fundamental problem. We all agree everything's terrible, but nobody wants to do anything mm-hmm. about it. So we have to show an alternative. Now we have older stories to pull from. We have the Bible to pull from, uh, but we could write new stories. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not hard to imagine this. We have it's to move beyond just deconstruction. Exactly. Yeah. And but and can, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and I was just going to ask you, like, what you're as you're describing this, I'm like, this is why I love Ted Lasso so much. Like, have you have you seen Ted Lasso? I've, I think I show? finished season, uh, episode five last night. Yeah. Okay. I, there, there is something that the way that it portrays human nature feels so dramatically different from the previous or maybe current still era of like the breaking bad identification with the, the bad guy, right? Like there's this, like, instead you have, like, it's one of the few shows I've watched in recent memory where I was like, I wish I were more like that guy, Ted Lasso, because there's this kind of like unrelenting goodness and kindness that creates a feedback loop because of his kindness toward others. And it's a really compelling narrative. And he does so in a way that is in many ways, sacrificing his own needs and being selfless toward, toward people who don't really have his good. And there's just like, I'm not going to quit on you kind of goodness to it. And, And, and I was like, man, this is like this, this is like a secular gospel because he doesn't make it about himself. He he makes it about whoever it is he's being kind to, but there's it's it's a significant improvement. But I'm I'm like God, we are so focused on the deconstruction and the skepticism of 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 culture being bad that we don't we're not as familiar with our own narrative as we are with the narratives we're supposed to be afraid of in a lot of ways. Like yeah, there's like a, a an, an anemia. Uh, it feels like in that area. So I've only gotten through episode five. So the, the episode we, we, my wife and I just watched last night was uh, they, uh, he basically gives his wife permission to divorce him. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know if that changes, but I mean, that. No, that, that was, that was one of the, like, that's the part where it's like, oh, yep, that's still very okay. secular. Okay. Yeah. Cause it, that, it, that really yeah. stuck at our yeah. throat. We were like, because she says, I don't feel the same anymore. I keep trying to wake up expecting to feel the same. And I just wanted to be like screaming at the teeth, like, what does that even mean? I don't know how I felt yes. when I was 18, hungry a lot. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, hormonal. Uh, I have no idea. Why would it? I couldn't even grow a beard then. That's yeah. right. Yeah, well, what is what that? <laughs> I had hair at the time. I yeah. felt. I felt hairy. I um, what? What is this even talking about? And the way the way it treats it seriously. Right. So I think, and so that's, um, it's close. It's good. There's some nice things about it. I do like that. He's a good person. He's desiring good for other people. Uh, but there is a, a sense in which he's, um, desiring, um, the good as they would fully understand it. And, um, mm-hmm. so for his wife, you know, she's tried and for her, the good means being with someone else. And so he has to let her go. And she says mm-hmm. to him, you know, you're not quitting. You're letting me go. And I'm like, well, but that means you're quitting. So what? <laughs> this isn't, yeah. this isn't no, no. any better. Why? <laughs> what's going on? Yeah. So uh, well, I don't know. But even in that. the framing of the way that he is 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 articulating, like 
the way they set up his allowing her to go and letting her go is is this kind of like I don't want this, but I'm going to prioritize what you're what you want. Like there's still more of a it's not it's not great. It's almost like if you had the selflessness divorced from the moral virtue aspect of of yes. of the gospel, right? But but it's at least it struck me how foreign that selflessness has been in television recently. Okay. Now I'm I'm going to try to make a crazy argument here. I right, think I that 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 what you just said, yeah, so the, so the moral virtue being separated from the selflessness mm-hmm. selflessness, I think that is the modern liberal not political but 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 philosophical liberal ideal. Um, yes. because what can happen is I can say to you, I am affirming you and your choices in life and who the identity that you're choosing to to be. And I'm doing it sacrificially. So I'm going to, I'm going to pay a cost, uh, in recognizing and affirming you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can, we can praise the sacrifice. So we can praise the, uh, selflessness, but at the same time, we have to recognize that, that selflessness toward a good that is not a good is not a, a good selflessness, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're actually doing it to their detriment. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you yeah. know, this is as a parent, right? I mean, there are times where you could, you know what? I can clean up my kids' toys for them. I could just go go around the room and clean up their entire room for them. They don't have to do this. I could be selfless. And then you realize that's not actually for their good. Mm-hmm. You know what? Mm-hmm. If I did that, it would be selfless, but it would not be for their good. It, it would actually not be loving them. It would not be desiring the good for them. And mm-hmm. so um, I think that the modern liberal ideal uh, which is based on that contemporary anthropology I was talking about, assumes that you know we really can't know what the good is for someone else. It, it, it's it's yeah. it's absolutely defined by the individual. We can't help, but mm-hmm. we can't we can't even offer. It. But all we could do is respond. So if they say, if they articulate, well, the good for me is that I need to be out of this relationship. Then the only thing that we can say is, I will be sacrificial and let you out. What we can't mm-hmm. say is, um, however you feel about this. There, the good for you is is actually to persevere and to recognize that mm-hmm. feelings come and go, and that there are mm-hmm. greater goods like keeping the covenant of marriage and staying together for children. Yeah, it's like it's a conflation between the subjective standard that is what I want and the more objective standard of like what I actually need, and those may not be the same thing. And to actually prioritize somebody's needs is the selfless thing, not just what they want. Yeah, man, yeah, it, it kind of it very much feels like that is the unavoidable fruit of a social media liturgy. Uh, um, <laughs> That's of, right, of, of perpetual affirmation yes. and and what your want being the thing that is is objectively true. Uh, only surround yourself by people who are going to be positive and encouraging and optimistic toward you and tell you what you want to hear. Like, yeah. it's like, what? Oh, yeah. No, that, yeah. that that makes total sense. And in some ways, I mean, almost to bring this full circle, the solution has got to in some ways be institutionally grounded, right? That we have a respect for not just participation in the institution of marriage and family that trans- transcends the way I feel about it at any given moment. But it's also as as virtue is stewarded by church, especially, but other social institutions as well, mm-hmm. that right. that story continues to be told and we can live up to it. Yep. Well, I'm keeping an eye on the time. Uh, I think we want to wrap up here, but let me just kind of pose this last question to you, Alan. What is the call to action kind of flowing from your article? Most of our listeners, I'm assuming, are probably neither college students nor professors. 
at Christian colleges. Christian colleges can more specifically give us an example of the way that uh, institutions more generally function in our lives. What is the call to action? What does it look like to support them? Is it is it just about giving money? <laughs> How do we answer the so what question? I think I think it begins with a, a reframing of our our positioning toward towards these institutions. Um, rather than think of of colleges as uh, businesses mm. um, that exist that we can use their service or choose not to use their service and and that's it, but we, we instead think of them as goods, mm. as as things that uh, that nurture us and that 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 we in turn support in various ways. So sometimes that looks like just encouraging students to go to Christian colleges. It, it, it means encouraging people working at Christian colleges. A lot of it is going to, if they're going to last, it's going to need, it's going to be a bottom line issue. It's, it's going to be that, that evangelicals with wealth, and there are still a lot of them in America, mm-hmm. um, are going to have to say, hey, you know what? This is a good and it would be great if our young evangelicals were properly formed and trained and came out of college without much debt at all. And that would require fat endowments so that students mm. are, are, are not burdened with a lot of debt. This is a good, and I'm going to give it. That's what it's going to require. Mm. And uh, right now, I, you know, there's a part of me that's always like, Alan, look, we're, you know, everybody's struggling. There's a recession. There's so much. But then I look at how much we get. I mean, we have so much money. And even just to evangelicals, like we, that the amount of money that, that 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 evangelicals in America have given to political causes over the last two years, I mean, it's just obscene. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's so much money. And there's going to come a day when we don't have those resources, mm-hmm. where 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 um, just demographically there are fewer evangelicals, or there are fewer evangelicals with wealth. Uh, I'm I'm fairly convinced that that's probably going to be the case. And we're not going to have the money to fund those institutions. But if we fund them now, while we have capital, then what can happen is they will last. They will last. So, so call to action is reorient the way you think about this. Take ownership. Take stock. Mm. This is you have a, a vested interest in this place succeeding. Whatever whatever the colleges are that are closer to you, uh, especially denominational colleges that you're affiliated with, take ownership of that and then give. Mm give because once it's gone, it's gone. And, um, there are insane pressures right now at all colleges, but especially Christian colleges to close doors. Mm. And it's only going to get worse. I've been thinking about, I've always told people, Hey, you need to give to the church first and then elsewhere after that. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of mm-hmm. wonder if I need, we need a third tier that says, Hey, give to the church first. And then there's this, instead of this one category, be split into two because I think there are nonprofits that provide great services and support and aid, but are not necessarily institutions because they're not necessarily Mm. forming the people they're serving, right? They're kind of a little bit disconnected from it. But if we had a kind of a three-tier hierarchy in terms of prioritizing the long-term, I think the institutional um, Christian institutions would have to be, for every reason you just listed, they have to be a higher priority than they have been. That's right. And one of the pushback that I always get when I when I say this is that, well, 
we should just be feeding poor people more. And, and it's like, I mean, this is this is like uh, debating uh, something, and then somebody's like, well, w- but what about abortion? It's like, well, you can't you can't say feeding the you know feeding the poor is a bad thing, or like saving the unborn, right? Like that always wins. Like, okay, well, yes, you're right. Never mind, I'll shut up. But but the, but but here's the reality: is that ha- uh, none of us. Uh, I mean, we're we're all spending money on things that we don't need to spend money on. Like we mm-hmm. can we can pay to help the poor. Every person who says who brings that up and says, well, why should we fund these massive institutions when we could be feeding the poor? Well, you know what? We spend money on frivolous things. We have we have the income. We have the income. We have the wealth. Yeah. It's that's it, it, that's that's not a legitimate response. Mm-hmm. No. There's there's money. We just need to be sacrificially giving. Yeah. And we don't have a culture of that. We have a culture of luxury, um, mm. which is scary which is historically a very scary place to be. Hmm. I mean, that's a dark note. (laughs) 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 Well, it's it's a sobering note. I mean, Bryce, you know, as you and I being church planters, right, there's an economic reality that that we're very familiar with, what Dr. Noble's describing, but we also have talked so much on this podcast about how people's increasing skepticism toward institutions is making even that part so much harder and much more need, uh, giving us, demanding a significantly higher need for us to be thinking about this in the long term. And I, I think Whoa. that is part of the answer to your question that, that Alan's talking about with, with like prioritizing long-term gener- intergenerational formation such mm-hmm. that your and I's job, Bryce, is made significantly easier because there are people who've been shaped by Christian colleges and universities who understand the value of the church and institutions. Mm. And even as we have sent our kids to those universities, they are training them up and sending them back into the church to be the kinds of cultural missionaries that we so desperately need. That's positive. Uh, yeah, That's a better yeah, place yeah. to end. We, 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 we don't rescued let, it. <laughs> don't, never let me end a podcast. This is what I've learned. Never oh. let me. <laughs> Well, Alan, thanks so much. This has been great. Enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Yeah, this is great. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our new theme music was recorded by Danny Rankin, who also designed our logo. We'll be back next week helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world on Everything Just Changed. Thank you.